0: Hello and welcome. You're listening to Southern Reverend, a podcast from our pastor in Georgia about the Christian faith, work in ministry, and life in the South. I'm your host, Joel Mooneyhan. It is the seventh and final week of Eastertide, and for this concluding episode, we're going to take a look at the book of Revelation. It's a confusing book at first glance, but hopefully by the end of it, you'll see that underneath the puzzling symbolism and cryptic language is a straightforward and simple message of hope that rings as true today as it did long ago. So, whoever you are, wherever this finds you. I hope that you enjoy listening and that you find something meaningful to take with you. And without further ado, here we go. is the most significant event in human history. It began when the followers of an itinerant Jewish teacher began proclaiming that he was the messiah after his death. Now this would have been a hard enough sell on its own to anyone in their faith because everybody knew that a messiah who was killed was no messiah at all. But his followers doubled down. Their contention was that he was the messiah because he was still very much alive, having been risen from the dead. And then slowly, against all odds, the movement grew. At first, a quiet hum, then a low rumble, until it was a groundswell and the entire foundation of the world shook. Whether or not you believe the story is true, you have to square yourself with the inescapable and inexplicable fact that something happened. For centuries before and in the centuries since, powerful men and women have vied for the kind of influence that one lowly Jewish carpenter held. And rather than starting a military conquest or a social revolution, Jesus' ambitions were even higher. He came to conquer people's hearts, and his revolution changed the entire course of human history. People can argue all day long that there have been other fanatical religious leaders throughout history with strange and even powerful messages. There have been. And still, nearly every major world religion and cult movement has had to answer the question of what to make of Jesus. And for all the would-be saviors that have come and gone, there's not another single person on whose life the entire calendar of history turns. Easter is also one of the most multi-layered holy days of any religion, unrivaled in its scope and unmatched in its power. It's the climax of the story in which the creator of the world suffered and died for the love of the creation, and then overthrew even the power of death by resurrecting. It represents not only the forgiveness of sin, but the destruction of sin's very power to condemn us. It's an event that ties together people from every imaginable corner of society, from the rich and the powerful, to the poor and the lowly, from the self-righteous to the self-condemned, from the elite to the outcast. It inspired countless men and women to abandon generations of dogmatism in favor of a new way of life rooted in grace. And while many stories and many religions have some of these aspects, none of them bring them all together in one single person. Easter recontextualizes the past, gives hope in the present, and points to something greater to come in the future. Outside of the Gospels themselves, the Book of Revelation may be the single most analyzed book in the entire Bible, and for good reason. It's full of complex metaphor, esoteric symbols, and cryptic figures of speech. And yet, for all the mystery surrounding it, it's actually pretty straightforward. The problem is that the message is often lost in a sea of alarming and breathless warnings about its meaning, striking fear into the hearts of people concerned with its cataclysmic imagery. And while it does have the power to capture the imaginations of believers and non-believers alike with its colorful description of characters and a strange narrative, these things often serve as distractions from the true message it's trying to tell us. But it isn't a secret code that needs to be deciphered. There's no password to get in the door. And if reading it causes you any alarm, then you've simply read it wrong. Take, for example, The Four Horsemen or the characters of the Beast, the False Prophet, and the Prostitute. I've read countless books and heard numerous talks that read into these symbols any number of contemporary events and modern public figures. If you go back a generation, you'll find that people did the same thing a hundred years ago. Go back further, you'll see it again, and on and on and on. And I'll circle back around to that in a moment. If I were to show you a magazine cover that depicted an elephant and a donkey in a boxing ring with the number 2020 written on the side, you would immediately take it to represent an election year in the United States with the two major political parties in a contest for victory. If I were to say, Honest Abe, or MLK, certain people would immediately jump into your head without me having to explain. If I were to throw out a sequence of numbers like 12-7-1941, or 11-22-1963, or 9-11-2001, certain events would come to your mind. These symbols and numbers are all cultural shorthand. We know what they mean, and using them in conversation saves a lot of time in establishing the context of what we're saying. But if someone, say, 2,000 years from now were to see them, it might take them a little bit of digging to understand their significance. The writer of Revelation, a man named John, was doing a similar thing. His readers would have immediately understood his imagery, who or what those symbols represented, and the cultural significance of using them. So when you read certain things in the book of Revelation, you have to remember that you're reading them some 2,000 years later on another continent, in another language, and from a different culture. Now, this isn't to say that the symbols are meaningless to us, or that there's nothing to discover within them. But when you take into consideration how many times people have taken those symbols and extrapolated meanings to predict future events or people based on past cultural symbols, you start to realize two things. One, that such literal interpretations have been proven incorrect time and time again. And two, and actually more significantly, that these symbols carry themes that beg the attention of people from one century to the next. That is what should grab our attention. It's the timelessness of the message, and the urgent need people have to hear the hope it's intended to give us. For all that people read into the book of Revelation now and try to tie it to events from the past 2,000 years, the man who wrote it and the people who read it were dealing with their immediate historical setting. Things were dark and uncertain, and so the message to remain steadfast in their faith was important. Sound familiar? And it pointed to the reality that no matter what happened to them, Christ had already secured the final victory. Whatever it looked like, whenever it came, they could trust that Christ had it well under control. John's world then is not altogether different from ours today. And the message is no different now, even 2,000 years later. And so the meaning of the book of Revelation can be summed up in this. The world in its present form is broken, troublesome, and even frightening. It's in conflict with itself, and it's at odds with the teachings of Christ, who did things like care for the outcast and pray for the forgiveness of his adversaries, and who taught things like love your enemy and bless her to the poor in spirit and do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And yet, into that brokenness, Christ still speaks and acts through those who pledge the allegiance of their hearts to Him. And He is still doing something amazing for those who are willing to see it themselves and who are willing to reveal it to others. When I said earlier that there is no secret code word for the book of Revelation, I might have been mistaken. But it isn't some complex equation or a long-lost cipher. It's simply a single phrase from a single verse with a brief grammar lesson. The verse is Revelation 21.5, and the phrase is, Look and see, I am making all things new. These are words spoken by Jesus from his throne. Now, bear with me for just a moment. The verb here that we translate into making is the Greek word poio. The form it takes in Greek is present tense, indicative mood, active voice. Present tense meaning it's happening now. Indicative mood meaning it's a statement of fact. And active voice meaning it's ongoing with no definitive end. For example, if I say, I cook dinner, you would take that to mean that there are times when I cook dinner, but I'm not actually doing it at the moment. But if I say, I am cooking dinner, you would take that to mean that as we speak, I'm in the process of preparing a meal, and that I haven't finished doing it yet. Jesus says, I am making all things new. This isn't something that he does once in a while. It isn't something that he did before, or that he will do at some point in the future. It's something that he is doing right now as I speak these words and as you hear them. It's ongoing. And he is not finished yet. When you read the book of Revelation and you keep that phrase in your mind, it all of a sudden changes the entire meaning. When you read of war and famine and disease and death, when you read of persecution and false prophets and the seductive allure of affluence, You must also hold in your mind that underneath all of that, Christ is making all things new. What you see around you as trouble and adversity and grief and pain are only the death throes of the power of evil, like an angry wasp trying to sting as it struck down. But these things will pass away, and the new thing that Christ is doing will endure. And that work began on the first Easter morning. So where is Christ, I hear people ask. Where is the evidence of this new thing you claim he's doing, and why can't I see it? I hear these questions all the time, and I even ask them myself. There's nothing wrong with asking this kind of question. The world is a mess. There's trouble in it, and to pretend that there's not is willful ignorance of the worst kind. But when Martin Luther looked at a church structure that was abusive in its power and had turned away from the fundamental precept of the free and abundant grace of Christ for all people, he didn't say, where is Christ? Instead, he took what he knew of Christ and showed it to others. He did something new and said, Christ is right here. When early abolitionists looked at the dehumanizing and wretched slave trade, they didn't look at it as evidence of Christ's absence. They looked at it and said, what can we do to show that this practice has no place in the economy of Christ's kingdom? They did something new and said, Christ is right here. And when Martin Luther King Jr. saw a segregated American South, he did not bemoan Christ's powerlessness to change it. He used the redemptive power of Christ and the grace in Christ's teachings to show that there's a better way for all of us to live together. He did something new and said, Christ is right here. We often look at the world around us that's hurting, and we say, Christ, where are you? Why aren't you doing something about this? And I think that more often than not, Christ looks back at us and says, where are you? Why aren't you doing something about it? God gave us minds to think through problems and wills to act in solving them. And most importantly, he gave his hearts to care about those around us who are afflicted by the evils of the world. The question isn't, what is Christ doing and why doesn't he do it sooner? The question is, what are we doing and why have we waited so long to get started? Christ is here. He's doing a new thing. But as the saying goes, Christ has no hands but our hands, no feet but our feet. is not a day. It isn't even a season. It's a different kind of reality altogether. It's a reality that should provoke us to live in a way that points the present world to the future one, one in which Christ's kingdom is revealed so that everyone can rest in the assurance of their rescue from bondage, the forgiveness of their sins, the restoration of broken relationships, and life beyond death. And that future doesn't have to be some far off moment. Easter is the pulling back of a curtain, the lifting of a veil. It's the reminder that the future kingdom of Christ is just on the other side of loving God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, and loving others as you love yourself. The new thing that Christ is doing is in all of us and is for all of us to share. It's in how we think about the world around us and whether we care enough to act on the injustice that we see. It's in how we speak of our faith or not. It's in how much hope we show in any circumstance and how graciously we speak to others in holding one another accountable. It's in how we live and how we act, how we treat those in our immediate sphere when they have no power or even desire to repay us. You want to see Christ work in the world? Then be a part of it. Not for the promise of security, not for fortune or fame or influence but for the love of the one who lived and died and lives today for your sake and for the sake of everyone in history, and for the hope that comes from knowing that the trouble of this world is not all there is in it, that Christ's kingdom has already begun, and that we have the responsibility and the privilege to reveal it to others. It isn't mysterious. It isn't even hard to understand. Christ is risen. Now what are we going to do about it? Thank you all for listening to this episode of Southern Reverend. If you've been listening along since episode one, I hope that this series has deepened your understanding of Eastertide and what the resurrection of Christ means for us even today. If this is your first time listening, then I invite you to go back and listen to the other episodes in this series that brought us here, and be on the lookout soon for a handful of mini episodes that follow up on a few questions I've gotten, and a few further reflections on a few things I simply didn't have time to cover in the earlier parts of the series. After that, I'm going to hit pause for a couple of weeks and get things lined up for the summer and the fall, but do not worry, I'll be back soon and there will be plenty more to come. In the meantime, follow me on Instagram and Facebook, both at Southern Reverend, or visit online at www.southernreverend.com. And while you're at it, share an episode or two with your friends. Y'all be safe and stay healthy out there wherever you are, and I will see you in a few weeks. Until then, y'all take care and be good to one another.